Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, places, and certain details, including relationships, have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Though we realize that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we hope you'll join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Happy to be here. Detective Dave. Good afternoon. And Small Town Fam, we are very excited to have one of our favorite guests back, Paul Holes. Hi. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> Good. Good. So, Paul, for the one and a half listeners who may not know, you are most famous for helping to break the Golden State Killer case, a phenomenal achievement. But you were you have a long and storied and successful career before that amazing moment in time. And so we're going to walk you back. And we'd love to hear about some of your other memorable cases that you are most proud of. I've got a story I'll tell. It's not necessarily the most memorable case. It's a very interesting case, but as you'll see, it was very memorable for me. And in this case, this is one where we knew the offender before we knew anything else. Oh. So this offender had a brother who was sitting in a bar and talking to his bar friend and was basically saying, guess what my dumb brother's done? And proceeds to tell this bar friend how his brother has killed two women and didn't realize that his bar friend was a confidential informant for one of the local agencies. (laughs) Know your audience. Wow. Exactly. (laughs) So the details initially that were provided was the first victim. She was a sex worker out of San Francisco. 
and actually a higher class type of sex worker and the offender is interesting in the fact that he's deaf and mute. So could you imagine trying to negotiate a deal? So there's potential there for some miscommunication. Right. But he was a repeat customer. And at a certain point, he had formed, in his mind, a relationship with this woman. And they're sitting in the front of his truck. And he communicates, you're my girlfriend. And she goes, no, we're not. This is a business relationship. He proceeds to pull out a knife and stabs the woman to death. This is where he goes to his brother, the one that's sitting in the bar. I'll call him Ray. And communicates to Ray, I've got this body. Well, they proceed to take the body out the end of the road where they're living, which is a hillside. And they strip all the clothing off, wrap this nude body in plastic, and bury it in a shallow grave on the side of this hill. Six months goes by. And the offender has now formed another relationship with another sex worker out of San Francisco. Same type of interaction. You're my girlfriend. No. This is a business relationship. He ends up stabbing her. Goes back to Ray. And Ray's going, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not helping you this time. So now the offender is left to his own devices. He goes out to one of our local towns and disposes of the body just on the side of the road and puts a bunch of trash on top of the body. And then two weeks later, that's when Ray is sitting inside the bar saying, guess what my dumb brother's done? It's an interesting characterization that you would only call it dumb instead of vicious, evil, misguided, all of the other more depraved things, descriptions you could give him. Yeah, I'm just uh, relaying how Ray described his brother, right? Fair enough. (laughs) So anyways, now we have a shallow grave that we have to locate. We bring some dogs out. The dog hits on a location on the side of the hill. I'm rolling out on this as a crime scene investigator, and my job is to recover the body and get it turned over to the coroner's office. How did you know where to search? So what ended up happening was when Ray told the confidential informant, the local agency, that agency, the detective who I knew well, went out onto the side of this hill with a shovel trying to find this grave but couldn't. Sheriff's office rolls out at that point, and it becomes a sheriff's case. And that's now how I'm out there. So we end up going down the side of this hill, clearing all the brush around the location where the dog hit, and we recover a body wrapped in plastic that's only buried maybe eight inches down, which is pretty typical for bodies that are buried because it is hard to dig deep. It takes a long time. So usually bodies are buried very surface, you know, it's very superficial. So me being me, I'm thinking, you know, this guy killed two women six months apart. Maybe he's got more victims out here that we don't know about. So now I'm going all over, crawling all over the side of this hill, going through all this brush, and I don't find another grave. All that brush I was going through was poison oak. (gasps) I'm immune to it, but I know people who aren't, and oh my gosh. I'm already itching right now. I'll revisit that issue in a second. (laughs) So now it's a matter of processing where the offender lived. The offender lived with his mom right down the road from where that grave site was. And Ray lived in a fifth wheel on the driveway. So the family basically is in this location. A fifth wheel? Like one of those RVs that doesn't drive itself. You have to hook it up to a pickup. Oh, oh, okay. Ray actually was cooking dope out of the fifth wheel. Awesome. Pretty standard. Yeah. You start getting a picture of the type of location that this is. So go into the offender's room, searching for evidence. And he has one of those craftsman tool chests inside his room. And it's locked. I can't pull the drawers open. So I end up popping the lock. And I pull open one of the drawers. 
and the drawer is filled with Polaroid photographs of women. <gasps> Random women that he's photoed while walking down the street. Hard bodies like at bars, you know, where he's got his arms around these women or at the racetracks. And you're starting to wonder, are all these women safe or are any of them missing? So we don't know. Now it's like we've got to start identifying all these women. Inside his room, he had a brochure for the local deaf school. And like I said, he's deaf and mute. And uh, on the back of this brochure, he had written each of the women's names that he had killed and the dates he had killed them. He had started a list. There was a list? Yeah. We knew the identity of the two women that he had killed, and it was their names and the dates. And so we could determine, you know, how long the one had been in the grave, which was over six months. This list, is it just the two names? It's just the two names. And so that's where we think he only had the two victims. Because he would have written them down. Yeah, I think so. One of the aspects about this case, the first victim in the grave had been buried in, I believe it was August, and then we're recovering her after the rainy season and she's been wrapped in plastic so when we go to pull her out to the grave when you decompose there's a lot of fluids not nice smelling fluids that end up building up in the body well it had all been contained in this plastic so when we pick her up all this fluid starts running out and pooling in the grave the coroner's deputy who's up slope from where i'm at he ends up slipping He's able to recover, but that jostles the body where the woman's leg ends up falling out of the plastic and falling right into the pool of decomp fluid. And where does it go? It splashes all over me. On top of your poison oak. Yeah. God. Anyways, this is a big case, obviously, and we're still working this case for a week. Um, two days after I recovered the body from the gravesite, I get a little red dot forming on my forearm. Looks like a flea bite, right? It kind of itched, and I go, oh, maybe that's poison oak. And I said, I've never had poison oak. That's all poison oak is. That's no big deal. The next day, I had oozing pustules on the back of my neck, on my forearms, and down my legs, my lower legs. But I'm still having to go into work. I'm still having to work this evidence. He had tried to burn each of the victim's clothing in the fireplace, so I'm sifting through ashes while my arms are wrapped in gauze to try to prevent the pus from dripping I didn't know what the heck was going on. I was just like, oh, this is bad. I would stand in the shower and put it all the way on hot and put my arms in the scalding water because the burning sensation felt so much better than the itch. It was like the only relief. After about a week of that, I finally went into the doctor and like, oh, yeah, now you should have come in. Got put on the prednisone, which is like instantaneously all of a sudden the body is recovering. Oof. So does a decomp poison oak cocktail have any lasting effects? Well, the poison oak, it eventually cleared up on me, though I've got some scars on my neck, and I think that's from the poison oak. The decomp fluid, imagine the bacteria in that. And I was garbed up in this Tyvek-type suit. It's like to prevent from being splashed, but I didn't have any protection over my eyes or my mouth, and I was feeling the droplets strike my face. So you run a serious risk of exposure at these types of cases, whether it's because of decomp or just being in a very bloody car in order to photograph all the blood patterns inside a car. I'm now inside the car and there's blood all around me. And there's particulate in the air too. So you're breathing it in. I went to a, uh, unfortunately it was a suicide and Within minutes of this suicide, I'm clearing this house and we get to the last room. And when we open the door, you can smell, A, the gunpowder 
from the weapon, but I can also smell the iron in the air from the blood. And when I walked out of the house after we found the victim, I wiped my face off and I had blood all over my hands. It was just in the air. It had vaporized in the air. That's how fresh the scene was when I got there. And you know, your mucous membranes, so your eyes and your nose and your mouth, all those things, they absorb these pathogens and it can be really bad for you. You can get sick. Yeah, you can actually contract some serious diseases from that exposure. So is there any disinfection process like, you know, in Silkwood, they wash you off for radiation? Is there any protocol for that? We always would practice or try to practice what we call just universal precautions when it comes to biohazards. When you're out in the field, it becomes much more difficult and you just use common sense. I thought I was protected in this case, and I wasn't. You know, I had something very unexpected happening, and next thing I know, I've got decon fluid flying up and hitting me in the face. Gross. Oh. Yeah. Paul, before we get too far away from it, what happened with this guy? Was he convicted? Did he go to jail? So he confessed. That's how we know a lot of the details on this case. And the interesting thing about him is that he never stood trial. He was found mentally incompetent. And so he got sent down to one of our mental institutions in California. And I haven't checked. I don't know. Sometimes these guys get released from there and he could be out. I I just don't know. I hope not. And that's what's nuts. These guys, once they're determined to not need mental health care or supervision anymore, you can't hold them criminally responsible because their sanction was going to the mental hospital and get found competent and they get released back out into the populace. That's disturbing. So how did the police conduct the interview with this particular suspect? And did he show any signs of remorse? Well, again, the interview process, and I wasn't part of this. I was out there as a CSI. The two long now retired investigators that interviewed him, they literally were writing questions on a piece of paper and sliding the piece of paper, and it was going back and forth. He doesn't talk. He can't hear. So in terms of his confession, he just provided the details of what he did. And I don't know anything in terms of was he expressing remorse or not. What happened to Ray? Yeah, did you arrest him for cooking meth? So Ray got popped for uh, cooking the dope, and he uh, died in prison. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360-degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report names Simply Safe 
Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code SMALLTOWN for 15% off your first purchase at LumiDeodorant.com. That's code SMALLTOWN at L-U-M-E Deodorant.com. Do it. Hey, Small Town fam. It's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are and what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. 
That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. I think one of the things that I've learned on this podcast that's really surprised me is that there are a lot of gooey, icky, sticky, gross biological hazards that you all encounter in law enforcement. And you don't even have to be the CSI technician for that to happen. You can just be taking pictures of the crime scene and stepping around pools of blood and things like that. It's just not something that you think about as a layperson when you think of police work. Hats off to all of you, honestly. This case is an example of some of the serious aspects when it comes to dealing with decomposing bodies and biohazards and natural hazards. There's a case that comes to mind that I think would really underscore that. And this was a horrific situation where a guy is a fugitive. He's wanted for murder. And he ends up sneaking back into town, a town in Contra Costa County, and breaking into his wife's house where he shared two young daughters with this woman. And the wife wasn't there, but the two girls were. And he ends up taking them hostage. So now we have a standoff. SWAT rolls out, and they've surrounded the house. And hostage negotiators are on the phone with the guy. And the guy is basically saying, I want my wife on the phone. And the hostage negotiators are going, no way. He's going to kill the two little girls while mom is listening. Oh. So they refused. And then this standoff, I believe, lasted for almost three days. And this guy has a gun inside the house, and so he's shooting out of the house, out of the garage, where he thinks the SWAT guys are. But then eventually he kills the two little girls and himself. Oh, God. They were six and three. And I'm not going to go into details, but it's just wrong when you see, like, a baby bottle with blood on it. Or, you know, those Velcro shoes with the cartoon characters. And my kids were the same age at that time. And they had the same toys, the same shoes. And you see the, you know, the kids, the photos of them, alive and happy up on the shelf. So anyways, we're processing the scene. This was like a hoarder house, but they weren't hoarders. Some people just live in atrocious conditions. So we're there for days, largely because so much crap is inside this house. You know, we're trying to document everything. And I go out. I'm out at the crime scene tape, and this woman comes up to me, and it's the kid's mom. And she's now in the process of trying to arrange the funeral for her two little daughters. And she's saying the youngest, the three-year-old, had this doll that she would drag around with her everywhere called Baby Doll. And she goes, I need to bury my daughter with Baby Doll. And I was like, okay, I'll get you Baby Doll. So, you know, now my life's mission at this point is to find Baby Doll. And I go inside this house where it's just piled with stuff. I'm in there, and I can't find Baby Doll. I go, are you sure Baby Doll's out there? And she says, absolutely in there. you got to find it. So I'm back and forth like five times. I just can't find it. And she's starting to get frantic. She's going, she has to be buried with Baby Doll. After probably two hours of me looking for Baby Doll, I just happened to pick up, there was like a sports coat that one of the investigators had laid over a dining room chair, and there was Baby Doll. <gasps> you know, so I'm coming out with Baby Doll, giving it to Mom. She's in tears at this point. No blood on the doll or anything like that? No. I've had parents with suicide victims, and you give the gun back to the parents, and it's got blood on it, and they lose it. Yeah. You try to soften the blow at the beginning and say, hey, so this gun, it's in a bag, 
it has your son's blood on it, I want you to be prepared to see that. If you're giving the gun back, why don't you clean it off before you hand it back to them? That's a great question. And I've actually had a father say, I want the blood to be on there. That's my son that is on that gun still. I can't even imagine. Yeah, me too. That's an age-old question. You know, I've had teenagers die in suicides or um, a kid, probably 19 or 20 years old. He'd been drinking with his buddies all night, and he passed out drunk. He vomited, and he drowned in his own vomit. And uh, he was discovered the next morning. So he lives with his roommates. His roommates are crushed. The parents show up after one of the roommates calls the parents and says, you know, Johnny passed away last night. And the parents want answers, and I get that. But we've got a job to do because I need to figure out if there's another reason for why this happened. And parents are demanding to see their child. And it's not a very flattering picture when you see this child with vomit on his face. And he's passed away with vomit on his face. But who am I to tell that parent that you can't see your child after I've finished that crime scene? I wouldn't want to look at my brother in that position and that be the lasting image that I have. But I can't speak for a parent. They just want to see their child. They do, and they want to say goodbye, and they want to say goodbye on their terms, and I'm never going to be the person to deny them that. Right. But it's those types of things where you recognize these are real people, these are real emotions, and that lives with you. So speaking of that, where does it go? Where do you put it? Um, it gets buried. Anybody that's in this field experiences that type of real life. It has an impact. We're smarter now about it in terms of getting counseling for people. But back in the 90s, no. You know, you just had to tough it out. Did any of your FTOs, your field training officers, or any mentors that you had in your profession attempt to prepare you for moments like that? When I first got hired, no. That was something that you just started living. You started experiencing. As we got better with that. There was uh, what we call peer counselors. People would be available that were in the agency or the county to go talk to. It wasn't part of a health type of benefit. It was more of these are people who know exactly what you've gone through. And was there any shame in, say, if you sought out somebody in that peer group who said, I know what you've been through, or was it sanctioned to people like, no, no, you definitely should take advantage of that? It's one of those things where I think most of the people in the field Don't take advantage of it because you don't want to be perceived as weak. But once I moved into management, I did have some people that had expressed some emotional distress, you know, and you're providing them resources and giving them access to whether it be these peer counselors or even through the mental health benefits. But at least under this type of situation, you can't force them to go. There's a stigma in the industry about you don't want to be perceived as soft or Not to say you care too much, but that you let it affect you too much. So you talk to cops and first responders, firefighters, paramedics, people that see human tragedy often. You definitely compartmentalize it and you just stuff it away. And sometimes you deal with it. Sometimes it deals with you. So having a twin brother who's a first responder and certainly when we talk to other detectives and Paul Holes, there's this brotherhood type relationship where we're on this side of the table and you guys are over there and we know that you'll never know what we know and you won't feel what we feel. We don't judge you for it. It's just, it's different. There's a connection. Right. And do you ever worry that 
the cumulative compartmentalization will impede your ability to remain empathetic. For me, we've always talked about the gallows humor and the comedy, the inappropriate jokes. That's kind of my way of maybe revealing that I'm affected by something, that it's bothering me. But to me, my day-to-day, I need to have that compartmentalization, and I need to be able to not be impacted to the point where I'm overanalyzing, and now it's affecting my performance in the way I'm actually able to cope from day to day. I don't want it to affect my poise in the job. So I've said it before, but talking about these cases on the podcast is helpful for me because I get to see from the other side how it affects you, Yardley. And that's an added perspective I hadn't thought of because I'm on this side of things. But certainly talking to other first responders is really helpful too because you know that they know. Compartmentalizing it for me, allowed me to be empathetic. It was like I was putting in its own little box over here and I could just put it away and forget about it. If it was still on my mind and I was thinking about it too much, then it would make me angry and I'd be upset and I probably wouldn't be empathetic when I am talking to someone who's been victimized because it would harden me too much. So if I can stuff it in this little box, lock it away and just deal with it later, deal with it when I talk to Dave or whenever, that allowed me to kind of move past it. And you, Paul? You know, I think you have to compartmentalize. I'm naturally just empathetic, and that's in many ways why I've chosen the types of cases that I go after, and it's usually the women and children cases. Those are the ones that I have focused on, in part just because I'm so empathetic to that victim. And I think what then Dave was saying, in terms of just functioning day-to-day, You have to just separate yourself because you have to still be able to do the job and don't let the emotions influence how that job is done. This job has taught me a lot about what's important that we see so many times where life for a family or life for a significant other changes in an instant. Their loved one is maimed, harmed, killed, and life has changed forever. So the little things that used to irritate me in life say it takes a while for you to get your steak at dinner. That shit doesn't bother me. It's so insignificant in my life with the stuff that I actually deal with on a day-to-day basis, especially when I was doing sex crimes and child abuse investigations, that the little stuff that people would complain about, I used to always look at them and be like, get over it, deal with it. That makes sense to me. Like, Paul, you finding baby doll for that mother so that she could have the one thing that she needed in the midst of the greatest tragedy of her life. That's empathy. I get it. Well, that case, yeah, just from a psychological standpoint, emotional standpoint, has hit me just about as hard as any case. It's always amazing talking to you, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing that. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Small Town Dicks, 
We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.